Morning, Castleton Church family. So glad to be with you this morning. A lot happening in our church life. I want to draw your attention to a very significant congregational meeting we have next Sunday night, 5 o'clock. We'll be voting on our budget as well as talking about the year of ministry ahead and uh, recapping what the Lord's done among us over this last year. If you haven't already picked up a packet, do so. And I really want to encourage you, if you're able to be at that meeting, to be able to vote, if you're a member, that would be wonderful. Most of the meeting will be streamed online, but it would be better if we're here in person. So if you're able, I hope you'll be able to join us. Excited to continue our uh, series through 2 Thessalonians. This morning we are in 2 Thessalonians, chapter 1, verses 5 through 12. That's 2 Thessalonians, chapter 1 verses 5 through 12. This is what scripture says. This is evidence of the righteous judgment of God, that you have may be considered worthy of the kingdom of God, for which you are also suffering, since indeed God considers it just to repay with affliction those who afflict you, and to grant relief to you who are afflicted, as well as to us, when the Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven with his mighty angels in flaming fire, inflicting vengeance on those who do not know God and on those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus. They will suffer the punishment of eternal destruction away from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his might. When he comes on that day to be glorified in his saints and to be marveled at among all who have believed because our testimony to you was believed. To this end, we always pray for you that our God may make you worthy of his calling and may fulfill every resolve for good and every work of faith by his power so that the name of our Lord Jesus may be glorified in you and you in him according to the grace of our God and the Lord Jesus Christ. Brothers and sisters, this is the word of the Lord. Amen. Let's begin with a word of prayer. Father, we are not worthy in ourselves. This morning, would you both remind us of that as well as encouraging us of the way that you can be at work within us the way you can grant that which you call us to, by your power and by your grace, and with trust that you will one day make all things right. Would you grant us this morning a vision of that day to come, a vision of Jesus, clear enough with eyes of faith that we might live a worthy life today. We pray these things in his mighty name, amen. In the book entitled The Insanity of God, a missionary who goes by uh, an assumed name of Neil Ripkin, he writes of meeting some house church believers in China. He was on a, a mission to try and understand how the global church endured suffering so well. This is what he, his conversation with some house church believers in China was like. They described to him what happened as they interacted with the hostile government officials. He said, the security police regularly harass a believer who owns property where a house church meets. The police say something like, 
You've got to stop these meetings. If you do not stop these meetings, we will confiscate your house and we will throw you into the street. And the property owner will probably respond, do you want my house? Do you want my farm? Well, if you do, then you need to talk to Jesus because I gave this property to him. The security police will not know what to make of this answer, so they'll say, we don't have any way to get to Jesus, but we can certainly get to you. When we take your property, you and your family will have nowhere to live. And the house church believer will declare, then we will be free to trust God to shelter us, as well as for our daily bread. The police will say, if you keep this up, we will beat you. And then they will respond, then we will be free to trust Jesus for our healing. They will declare, then we will put you in prison. And by then, you can almost anticipate the believer's response. Then we will be free to preach the good news of Jesus to captives, to set them free. We will be free to plant churches in your prison. If you do that, we will kill you, the frustrated authorities will vow. And with utter consistency, the house church believers will, will, will reply, then we will be free to go to heaven and be with Jesus forever. I don't know about you, when I hear of the great faith of people standing up under affliction and persecution, I, I have two emotions come into my heart. I, I'm both inspired and at the same time, I'm a little discouraged. I think, wow, it's amazing what God does in them. And I think in the back of my heart, but I don't know that I could ever have faith like that. Maybe you've had thoughts like that as you've heard testimonies of believers that have had to stand up under a test and a trial of affliction. Brothers and sisters, in, for people like us that wonder how we would respond if we were called to suffer for Christ, I am here this morning to tell you that you can and you would live a life worthy of Jesus if he calls you to suffer. That it's not some super class of Christianity to be able to endure, yes, suffering and persecution. Know that, that God provides what he requires of us and that we can live a worthy life for him if we will trust him and rely on him. That's what this passage is about. Twice we are told that the Thessalonian believers are to live a life that is worthy, a worthy of the kingdom of God and worthy of the God who called them. But what we also find is the way that they're able to live that worthy life. This is the main point that we will see this morning. You can live a worthy life, but you must trust that God is just and powerful. It's possible to live a worthy life if you will trust that he is just and powerful. That's what we'll see this morning in two sections. In verses 5 through 10, we'll see a worthy life trusts in his judgment. A worthy life trusts in his judgment. And then in verses 11 through 12, we'll see a worthy life relies on his power. Worthy life relies on his power. My prayer is that we will indeed find that we can and we will live a worthy life when we trust 
and will rely on the God who calls us to himself. Let's begin in verses 5 through 10. A worthy life trusts in his judgment. It's helpful to remember a little bit of context about the Thessalonian church. They were a healthy, faithful church that was being afflicted by at least two ailments. There was the false prophecies about the final days that had crept in among them. There was doubt about the timing and the exact details of the return of Christ. And in the confusion, there was discouragement. There was also very real practical persecution that this church was enduring. They had renounced their idols to worship the true God through Jesus Christ, and they were beginning to pay a price for it. Well, the passage this morning connects these two things together. The Apostle Paul connects their suffering and persecution to the final judgment that Jesus will bring when he returns in his second coming. Uh, Back in verse 4, which we studied last week, He was commending them for their faith in the middle of affliction. He takes that thought and in verse 5 he continues on explaining that their faithfulness under persecution is in fact proving God's justice. Look in verse 5. This is evidence of the righteous judgment of God. You may say, how how is it possible that someone suffering for God proves God is righteous and just? Well, the answer comes both in the the type of preparation, the the way Jesus calls disciples to himself. They are to pick up their cross and follow him. That's what it means to be a disciple, to suffer with Jesus. But it also means looking forward. And that's what the rest of the passage shows us, 5 through 10 connecting our sufferings and persecutions to the judgment that Jesus will bring when he appears on the final day. Paul makes that connection to them, and he tells them that this justice that is coming will make sense of their suffering. Now, verses 6 through 10 are a bit difficult to follow if we try to follow the flow of thought. And the reason for that is because Paul is describing one event at two levels. Uh, He he does first in uh, 6 to the beginning part of 7, he does a very high-level overview and uses stark contrast to describe how the judgment Jesus brings will result in two very different outcomes. For those that know him and find relief and, and those who are his enemies who will find punishment. And then the second half of 7 through verse 10 It gets into the very nitty-gritty details. It uses lots of graphic, vivid images to describe what that judgment will be like. Uh, Because it's a bit difficult to go through this uh, section by section, instead we're going to go through it topically for clarity and speed. So I want to draw your attention to three things that are going to happen described in these verses. The first is that Jesus will be revealed. This is all talking about the second coming of Jesus. And in verse 7, that coming is described as a revelation, the, the revealing of Jesus. Right in the middle of the verse, when the Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven. The word for revealed is apocalypsis. It's where we get the idea of apocalypse. It's also the same word that's used for the book of Revelation. That is a 
revealing of these end things. In this case, is the revealing of the true Jesus. The, the Jesus who is more than a carpenter, more than a caring teacher, more than just a, a victim that, is a mis, that experienced a miscarriage of justice. The Jesus that is in fact the eternal son with all the authority of heaven to judge. The descriptions we have of Jesus, well, clue us in that this is what Paul has in mind. He comes from a place, from heaven, he's revealed from heaven, and, and accompanying him from heaven are mighty angels. Now, now ask yourself, who lives in heaven and has the armies of heaven at his beck and call? Well, it is God. God the Son, Jesus Christ. And he is arriving to do something, that is, to judge. That judgment will be seen in two different, very stark outcomes, very different from each other. The first is described as repayment. You see that in verse 6, repayment. This is, again, at a very high level describing what will happen on Judgment Day. Since, indeed, God considers it just to repay with affliction those who afflicted you. We're told right there that this is going to be uh, a, a justice happening, and it'll be happening to two particular groups. Uh, in verse 6, you see it's the persecutors, those who are actively harming Christians for their faith, they will be repaid for their sin of persecuting the church. Now, it's easy enough to understand there's a proportionality to that. The afflictors are in turn afflicted by God. They, they get what's coming to them. But notice that as the camera lens zooms out later on in verse 8, that the group in view under this judgment is much broader. In verse 8, we are told it's, it's not just the persecutors, but this vengeance will come on those who do not know God and on those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus. This judgment will be so broad that all of God's enemies will be included. The militant ones and frankly the more subtle ones. And yet it will be a total judgment. It will encompass all of humanity in opposition to God. Now, what will this judgment be like? Well, frankly, it will be terrible. The images that are used to describe it are frightening, as they are intended to be. It's a, a hallmark of apocalyptic literature to show us vivid, vivid images to describe things that our mind would not otherwise be able to apprehend. And watch as the dark hues are painted on the canvas. And the terrible nature of God's wrath comes into view. We're told that the, this judgment will be accompanied by Jesus appearing in flaming fire in verse 8. That's almost certainly a reference to Isaiah 66. Let's just take a moment to read Isaiah 66 verses 15 through 16. For behold, the Lord will come in fire and his chariots like the whirlwind to render his anger in fury and his rebukes with flames of fire. 
For by fire will the Lord enter into judgment, and by his sword with all flesh. And those slain by the Lord shall be many. Paul picks up on an image of God's judgment and says the coming of the Lord Jesus will bring this terrible judgment of God like fire kindled. Well, even more than that, we see that it is an inflicting of eternal destruction in verse 9. They, they will suffer the punishment of eternal destruction. What does eternal destruction mean? Your brain won't have a category for it. It's obvious it's meant that it, it goes on and on and on. It never ends. Another color added there, there is an absence of something away from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his might. This punishment, it will be the cutting off of all that is good. It will be as if you take life and you remove everything good from it. All the joy, all the peace, all the happiness. Because all those things come from our source of joy and peace and happiness, God himself. This judgment will forever cast away God's enemies from his goodness. And the only thing that will remain will be never-ending punishment. The just wrath of God upon sinners. Brothers and sisters, this is a sobering, terrible thing to consider. And yet we can't shy back just because the Word of God gives us something uncomfortable. We have no right to edit it. I once went to a funeral that greatly discouraged me. It was a, a very difficult circumstance. People that were very suddenly ripped from loved ones. But as hard as it was to hear the story of their death, it was even harder to listen to the sermon that was preached. The preacher got up and declared to everyone that was there that Every single person that ever existed will end up in heaven. He declared, God's love wins. That there is no eternal punishment. That one day everyone will uh, accept God's offer and end up in heaven. Frankly, so much of evangelicalism is embarrassed by the concept of the wrath of God. By an eternal hell under his punishment that is just for our sins. Yeah, brothers and sisters, if we are going to be those sort of whole Bible Christians, and we believe we don't have the right to edit God's word, but to believe it and to, to live by it, then we can't just avoid texts like this one that teach things that are frankly uncomfortable for us to think about. Well, thankfully, it's not just the dark hues on this canvas. There is a, another side to the coin, and it is glorious. Glorious relief that will come on that day. That is the third concept that we'll see happen. There will be relief for the afflicted. Just as the afflictors have a, uh, experienced the affliction from God, those who are afflicted receive relief in verse 7. And to grant relief to you, who are afflicted, as well as to us. Once again, you see that two-step process there. It starts with the specific, the persecuted Christians, and then it extends to everyone, to 
the Apostle Paul and his ministry team, and then later on in verse 10, to all Christians. It's amazing from a literary standpoint. The Apostle Paul does a masterful job here. He completely retraces his steps, going category by category of everything that was true of those under the judgment of God. And he says the inverse, the exact opposite that is true of those that know God through Jesus Christ. Instead of being afflicted, they will be granted relief. Instead of being cast away from his presence, in verse 10 we're told that he will be glorified in their presence. Instead of being forever away from God, they will instead see a glorious vision, a vision of his might, and they will marvel at what they see. And all of this is because they are not those who have disbelieved and disobeyed, but because they have believed the testimony. That is the gospel of Jesus that Paul preached. So what's Paul saying? What he is saying is that for believers in the midst of persecution, believers trying so hard to live a life worthy of the kingdom of God, that they will find it's possible to live that life if they look forward to the day Jesus comes to judge. And they realize on that day it'll be revealed it has all been worth it. Don't you love that old hymn? It'll be worth it all. It'll be worth it all when we see Jesus Life's trials will seem so small when we see Christ. One glimpse of his dear face, all sorrow will erase. So bravely run the race till we see Christ. Brothers and sisters, when you hear stories of Christians that are suffering, even under unbelievably difficult, fiery trials. Realize at that moment, your heart has a decision to make. You can either believe the lies the enemy wants you to believe. He'll say things to you like, you see, that is what, you do, what happens to you if you follow God. It is a fool's errand to live a life for Christ. You're going to end up killed yourself. You can believe that lie. Or you could believe what God's word says. That yes, their pain and sorrow are true. And yet that's only a small sliver of the story that will be revealed when our Lord Jesus is revealed on that last day. All the pain and sorrow and suffering will be outweighed by an eternity of joy and glory and peace. And that means, brothers and sisters, we don't lose heart when we see Christians suffer. I think we also need to be moved in our hearts by the magnitude of the judgment described here. Now, the point of this passage is to give you comfort in the midst of persecution. It's not to give you glee at the thought of your tormentors being tormented. It would be wrong for us to take a passage like this and go out and be, frankly, self-righteous and hateful toward people that are non-Christians. No, that's the entirely wrong posture of our heart. 
as we consider the terror and the eternal sorrow of that day. Now we should be motivated out of mercy and love that to, if the Lord would allow us to be the instruments he might use to help our unsaved friends and family avoid this disaster. Maybe you've heard the story of William Tyndale. His ministry was one of bringing the Bible to the English-speaking world. He wanted to make a translation that the common man could read. That was not something the Catholic Church wanted to happen, nor King Henry VIII. As a result, for his trouble, he ended up a martyr. He was strangled. After his body was lifeless, he was burned. You might think that a man like that, especially seeing his death coming, might be bitter towards his enemies. And yet his last recorded words, they are a plea for mercy. His last recorded words are these. He said, Lord, open the eyes of the king of England. I think that's the right reaction to this terrible portrait of the right, just judgment of God. Now, if you're listening to this sermon this morning and you're not a Christian, friend, I, I know that deep down in your heart, you long to see justice done. Maybe even you find yourself frustrated by the lack of justice in this world. Friend, that's a right, good thing for you to feel the desire for justice. Realize the Bible teaches that one day justice will come to this earth. We won't bring it about by government or armies. Even, we might get small measures of justice, but you will always be frustrated looking for justice in this world. It's just not possible, given how broken and messed up this world is. But there's this double-edged sword to justice, friend. Consider, what about justice for your life? If what this passage says is true, if you were to meet God, on your own terms, you would find that to be the worst of all days. In fact, you would find it to be the worst of all eternities. The Bible teaches us that we have all broken God's laws, that all of us are rebels against the God who made us, and that the just penalty for our sins is, yes, eternal death, an eternity away from him under his punishment. Friend, I don't want that to be your future. But the good news is that you can escape the wrath of God. You can know that the day of judgment, when you meet your maker, will not be one filled with terror if you meet that God through Jesus Christ. Jesus is the one God sent, his son, to come and turn away his wrath from sinners. Jesus did that by dying on the cross. There he took the punishment we deserved. And in so doing, giving up his life, a perfect life, Jesus made possible our forgiveness. And yes, even our eternity, not as God's enemies, but as his dearly beloved children. Friend, I want so badly for you to know the peace of knowing that Judgment Day won't be a terrible day for you. It'll be a day of joy. But you must turn from your sins. You must stop trying to live for yourself. And you must trust Jesus to save you from your sins. If you don't know how to do that, friend, that is Christianity 101. Any Christian will be glad to tell you. Ask a Christian friend how you can know 
that when you meet God, he won't punish you for your sins. Well, it's very important for us to live in light of that last day, but there's also a very practical question of how we are to live right here and now. And that's what the second, much shorter section shows us. A worthy life relies on his power. A worthy life relies on his power. There's a second time in this passage where that idea of a worthy life comes up. This time in a prayer for, for, from Paul to the Thessalonians. He says, to this end we always pray for you that our God may make you worthy of his calling. He then goes on to list out what it will look like for them to be worthy of the calling. And it is basically living a life that glorifies Jesus and does all the things that God would have for us. It is every intention of our hearts, every action of our bodies. It is all of it being used for God's glory. Now, it's already hard enough. But it's even harder when you remember the context that this is written. This is written to people in the midst of suffering and persecution. And, and Paul is telling them, you don't have any excuse to indulge in sin or to be lackadaisical. No, you must live a faithful life. As I was considering the great heights of the challenge that Paul's prayer reveals, I, I found myself despairing a little bit. Maybe you find yourself despairing a little bit of this spiritual mountain you're meant to climb. But as I was studying, I found a great nugget of, of relief. Is that this thing that Paul is praying God would do within them is something that God will provide the means for them to do. Look right there at the last bit of verse 11. They may fulfill every resolve for good and every work of faith, by his power. How's God going to do this in you? By his power. God will provide the spiritual power needed for you to live, yes, a life worthy of him. We've had a vivid illustration of the need for power this week in our country, haven't we? Have you been watching as the, the Lone Star State? found out what winter is like. We, we might chuckle a bit at people unprepared for the cold. Uh, as a Floridian, it's not as funny as you think. But it's a, a tragic thing when you see the, the uh, pain and misery that has been inflicted on the state of Texas by this winter storm. Uh, power plants seized up, windmills stopped turning, nuclear power plants shut off. The grid, it was apparently just minutes from total collapse. And the result was millions of Texans without power. That meant you, you can't vac plug in the vacuum and clean up the floor. You can't microwave that breakfast burrito you were craving. But even worse, you can't even heat your home. Without power, it's pretty much impossible to live in the modern age. I think there's an analogy, an analogy that we all intuitively understand of the futility of trying to live the Christian life without God's spiritual power enabling it. Have you ever found yourself feeling like the spiritual lights are starting to flicker? As if you are teetering on the edge of total collapse? 
Maybe it's frustrations in parenting as it just seems like your kids will never get the message. Uh, Maybe it's discouragement in your discipleship. You just don't seem to be able to help that other believer the way you want to. Maybe you find yourself depressed and frankly getting a little desperate in loneliness and in the quiet of your own heart. Or maybe it's in your witness. You, you feel like you're ineffective and you just can never quite break through to that person you want so badly to come to Christ. The Christian life can very easily feel like a fruitless, impossible exercise, one in which the lights are flickering and might just turn off all together. But brothers and sisters, the good news is that the lights will not go off if you are in Christ. And in fact, God's power can accomplish all the things that seem to frustrate you right now. That God, in his mercy, is leading you to rely on him. Because it turns out from the beginning, these things were impossible in your own strength. It's a glorious thing to watch God work in your life. To see his power helping you to have attitudes that frankly are just not possible of your own personality. To have words of wisdom that frankly your mind is not clever enough to think up. To have an indestructible joy that none of us could muster up on our own. I I loved watching our small group this year through the pandemic as so many difficult, challenging trials the Lord gave us as we saw God's power at work in each other. He helped us weather loneliness, intense medical treatments, separation from loved ones. He helped us persevere in our witness when it felt fruitless. He helped us at moments where we felt lonely and disconnected from normal life and even from the church. We saw God working through each other and it encouraged us. Brothers and sisters, one way that you do see God's power at work and find encouragement to rely on him yourself is through the lives of other Christians. Here again is a call for you to stay engaged with your church. But there's also a a very personal, personal thing here. When you feel like, when you feel like you're frigid, And in the dark, at moments like that, you need to remember, this is God calling you to run back into his arms. This is the Lord reminding you that you must rely on his strength to live the Christian life. Uh, I love that song we sing, Jesus Strong and Kind. One of the lines in it is perfect. Jesus said that if I'm weak, I should come to him. No one else can be my strength. I should come to him. So brothers and sisters, if if you find yourself feeling ineffective and powerless in your walk this morning, don't think that God's abandoned you and and don't give up. This is God teaching you a grace-filled lesson. That you must rely on him for your power day to day. And that's the only way to be faithful until the final day when the Lord Jesus returns. 
So we see here that a worthy life, it's not just for a super class of Christians. No, it's something that all Christians can and will live. Yes, even in the face of persecution. But we must trust that he is just and we must rely on his power. I was greatly helped by one of those stories of faith in affliction this week. Um, reading about Pastor Andrew Brunson. Uh, maybe you've heard his story. He's an American that went over to Turkey to preach the gospel, to do ministry. As uh, sometimes happens, he began encountering persecution. He was rounded up by the police, taken to jail. It ended up being a rather long stay in jail, 735 days to be exact. I remember years ago actually coming to a prayer meeting focusing on persecution in the global church and praying for Pastor Brunson by name in the midst of that imprisonment. Well, I can't say that his faith shows us a spiritual hero that went from one victory to the other. He has been very honest about the fact that his endurance under this persecution was a great work of God in his life. He got to some very low points. In one uh, interview, he said, I, I had periods where I was suicidal, where I lost all hope. I was in despair, and I had frequent panic attacks. The difficulty of all of this even had him questioning God himself. He said, I felt abandoned by God. In those circumstances, it was easy to let my heart grow cold. It was a dark place. You can see the, the spiritual lights flickering in that brother's heart. But by God's grace, in, the, in his inability to muster up faith, God provided what was necessary. He, he, he realized that what he needed most was to seek the Lord and to rely on his power. He said, I became aware I could do very little to fight for my freedom, but I thought... I'm losing my relationship with God in this terrible environment, and I need to focus, because if I lose this, then I've lost everything. As he sought the Lord consciously, as he tried to rely on his power and to trust him, he found the strength he needed to go on. He even found a vision to what was coming. He connected his suffering to eternity. He said, one, one thing I tried to focus on was to cultivate the fear of God, having an eternal perspective, seeing things through his eyes. At the end of this journey, he was able to declare, he is worthy of all my pain and suffering. Brothers and sisters, that's not superstar Christianity. That's just being worthy in the life God gives you to live. And you can and you will do the same thing in whatever circumstances God calls you to. If you'll trust that he is just and if you'll rely on his power, you'll find all the grace and mercy and all of his enabling strength to live a life worthy of the Lord Jesus as a citizen of his kingdom. Brothers and sisters, this is something that can be true of us.
Let's pray. Oh, Lord Jesus, would you do this work in us? Would you grant us in our weakness your grace? Would we see that your grace is sufficient for us, that your power is made perfect in our weakness? Would you keep us from despairing, either from the difficulties of day-to-day life here in Indianapolis or of the prospect of being persecuted for you, Lord Jesus? Would you help us to trust you, to see the day coming when our relief will be here and it will be forever? Would you work in us so that others might see your power at work within us? Would would we give you all the glory when you do that? Oh Jesus, you are good and you are faithful. We pray these things in your mighty name. Amen. I invite you again to the Q&As that are right after the service. Um, I'll be down in the adult ed room. Uh, We'll be able to ask questions about our budget or anything else you'd like to ask related to our church. Um, Again, right after the service down in the adult ed room. Now let me send you out with the last two verses of our passage as the benediction. Hear this prayer. Hear this prayer is applying to your life. To this end, we always pray for you that our God may make you worthy of his calling and may fulfill every resolve for good and every work of faith by his power so that the name of our Lord Jesus may be glorified in you and you in him according to the grace of our God. In the Lord Jesus Christ, amen.